Father, thank you that, like Robbie reminded us last week, you are with us, you are among us, and you are for us. Thank you that at Christmas in particular, we get to celebrate those truths, that you are with, among, and for us to rescue us, that you, the unbreakable, became breakable for us, that you became poor so we could be rich, you were born like us so that we could become like you. As we think about you being with us, we pray for those in our family who need your presence and your power as they battle illness. Bill Hay and Mike Witten need your hands, the King's hands, the hands of the healer. Please strengthen Cindy Hay and Sandy Witten as they love and care for their husbands. Lord, we look forward to the day like Richard read, when night will be no more. Thank you for Amy Hudson on staff with RUF at UAB. Empower her Holy Spirit to lovingly and powerfully point college kids to Christ, like we sang, our Redeemer, Shepherd, and Friend. And thank you for Maggie Wright, Roby, Kim, and Steve Kilgore's new grandbaby. Be with that whole family. And we pray for Maggie as she grows, that she would trust and worship you as her rescuer. Thank you for these verses from Numbers that Robbie is about to read. We know your word is true and given to us because you love us. Make the gospel reverberate as Robbie preaches your word. Open our eyes like Balaam's eyes were opened. And like the Bethlehem shepherds, we pray we would glorify and praise you for all we have seen and heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you want to go down to Auburn to watch the men's basketball team play USC today, I'm afraid you're too late. They're tipping off in about an hour and you're not going to make it. Um, there are some people that are, that are going and they're paying about $2,000 a piece to get those last tickets. Um, and, and it's not because they're playing USC today. That's, that's not why people are paying $2,000 a ticket to, to go. And it's not because Bronny, LeBron James' son, is playing. He's only played 17 minutes this whole season. He's only scored four points. Uh, why are pay, people paying hundreds and in some cases thousands of dollars uh, to go to that basketball game today, tipping off in about an hour uh, or less than that, in about 36 minutes? Why are they doing that? Uh, just, the, just the rumor, just the hope that the, the true king will walk in there and just watch his son play. Uh, people are paying big money hoping that the king, LeBron James, will show up in the gymnasium. Uh, I find that fascinating. Uh, people pay so much money just to be in a gym where someone might show up. But if you're into royal sightings, if that's something that excites you, I've got good news for you. That's what today's passage is about. Today's passage is a true royal sighting, much grander uh, than what some people might see today, uh, just a little bit south of here. Uh, we're studying the book of Numbers right now, and this is where we are in the book. Uh, God has his people... The people he chose by his own grace, by his own mercy, to belong to him, that he might bless them. But not just that he might bless them, but that he might bless all the families of the earth through them. He came to one man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and God made big promises to Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his grandson Jacob and then their descendants. And God said, I'm going to bless you. 
And whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. Unbelievable, huge promises. Well, these are the descendants that we've been reading the story about them uh, here in the book of Numbers. And here's what's happened to those people, that family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They ended up in Egypt where they were enslaved for over 400 years. But then God had made these promises. So he showed up and with his great mercy and love and power, he rescued his people. He brought them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where he said, I'm going to be the true God that lives in your midst. And I'll tell you, I'll describe for you the neighborhood you all want to live in. And so uh, God did that. He brought them to himself and then he led them through the wilderness. And God's plan was to give them a very specific land that he had promised to give to Abraham and his descendants forever. And so here's what's happened. Uh, God led his people up to the boundary of that of that very special land. And when they first got there, that generation that had been rescued from Egypt, they didn't believe God. They didn't trust him that he was good enough and powerful enough. So they disobeyed God. They wouldn't go in the land. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But now through God's patience and mercy, he has his people still led by Moses back very much on the border of the land. They're in the plains of Moab and they're on the east side of the Jordan River. And pretty soon... Moses is going to die. And pretty soon, God's going to raise up a new leader. And pretty soon, God's going to lead his people across the Jordan River into that land that he promised them. And when they get in that land, it's going to be a land of milk and honey. It's going to be, it's going to be like a new Eden experience. It's going to be wonderful and great. And that's where God's people are. They're, they're right there on the border of the land, just waiting and waiting. And here's what else has happened. God's people have recently won some military victories against people that were their enemies, people that wanted to kill them and their children. And they've won some victories. And now they're poised on the boundary of the land, about to go in and receive this gift from the Lord, their creator and redeemer. They're about to go get it. But one of the kings in that region has seen them win these victories, and uh, that is King Balak of Moab, and he's shaking in his boots. He knows that he and his army are not strong enough to take on uh, Moses and Israel and uh, God's people. And so he, since they can't defeat them militarily, here's what we've been seeing in the story. Balak, the king of Moab, has hired an ancient hitman an ancient sorcerer named Balaam, and he's hired him to come and pronounce a curse on the people of God. He's based, his reasoning is, I can't defeat them militarily, but maybe I can uh, take them from the heavenly realm and we'll get a curse on God's people and then uh, we can defeat them because he's, he's scared of them. So Balak, the king of Moab, has hired Balaam, an ancient sorcerer, an ancient religious hitman, to pronounce a curse on the people of God. And so we've seen that the last couple of weeks. And last week, we saw that um, we saw the first two of three major oracles uh, that Balaam would pronounce over God's people. He's hired to curse them, but in both cases so far, he hasn't cursed them, he's blessed them. And Balak, the king, is getting pretty desperate. And so today's passage is about the third oracle, but I got, I got news for you. There's not, there's not a fourth oracle. There's a bonus one. So you, you can do the math how you want to. But there's a third oracle because he, he, he takes him to high place three times, three times trying to get Balaam to curse his people. It doesn't work. We'll see the third oracle today. Once again, ends up not being a curse, but a blessing like the former two. 
But then there's a, a bonus oracle as well, one that Balak didn't bargain for. So if you will, uh, let's look at the text together. Uh, it's in your Bible. We're going to begin in chapter 23, verse 27, but also on pages 13 and 14 in your worship guide, if you'd like to read along with me. This is the setting of, and then the third oracle and the bonus oracle. Here we go. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, Like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and it's for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness, who will rouse him? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you've blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will honor you. But Yahweh has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Here's the bonus oracle. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the most high. He sees the vision of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We believe that. I'm going to pray just for a minute that we'll 
believe it together as we hear this passage. And one remarkable thing about the passage is uh, God often uh, speaks his prophecies, his holy word through holy prophets. Uh, this passage is one where God gives a vision from an, through an unholy man. And yet it's his word for you and me. Let's pray that we'd receive it. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you've revealed your ways in ancient times, not only for your people long ago, but for us today, that we might put our hope in you and learn to trust you and fully commit ourselves to your vision for us and for your world and the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Balaam has been hired to curse God's people. Twice he's taken up to a high place. He sees a portion of the people and twice he comes back and he blesses them and doesn't curse them. Balak is very upset. So it's the third time and look at that very first verse, 2337. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for, for me from there. He hasn't learned his, mess, his lesson Balak has not figured it out. God is completely committed to blessing his people, but he's going to try one more time. We're going to go up to to Peor. We'll get you to high place. And and Balaam at first says, okay, do what you did the last times. Get get your altars, uh, you know, get the animals, uh, build the altars, get the bulls, get the rams uh, and all that. And he's getting ready. Balaam is getting ready uh, to meet with the Lord again. But our first point today, I want you to see what Balaam saw about Yahweh. Because you notice the text has kind of been interrupted. He, he, he builds the altars, he gets the rams, but in the other, the other two oracles, he actually went and the sacrifices were made. Then he went and met with Yahweh. But here he, he doesn't do what he did the first two times. Um, but in verse one, this is what arrested Balaam. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what Balaam saw about Yahweh. 24 verse one. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he didn't do what he had been doing. No, once again, he's going to bless them. Just let those words sink into you just for a minute. Here he is, the pagan hitman, the sorcerer, the magician, maybe a necromancer, one who typically looks at omens, trying to figure out what do the gods want us to do? Uh, That's his way of being in the world. But this time he goes up to the high place and he looks over the whole of Israel, tribe by tribe. And here's what he saw. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, it arrested him in his tracks. And he understood he was just set apart to bless and not to curse. And so the third oracle will be the same. It'll some new information, but once again, he will not be allowed to curse. He's only set free to bless. Have you seen what the pagan sorcerer saw? That it's the Lord's pleasure to bless his people. I don't know where you're looking for the key treasures this year at Christmas season. I'm pretty excited about some of my gift certificates. I'm pretty excited about some of the things I might, that have my name on them under the tree. But there's something deeper, richer, far better than any gift that my wife might give me, though she's pretty good at gift giving, far better than I. Anyway, there's something great, way greater, a commitment way deeper. Balaam saw it. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless his people. Have you seen it? 
Have you seen God's deep and abiding commitment to bless his people? Our passage in the whole story of the Bible makes it really clear today that that's who God is. His heart, he gets pleasure from blessing his people. Now, his people are living in the wilderness and they've been struggling and complaining. They don't like their circumstances. And so when they've looked at their circumstances, they've concluded at times that God isn't good, that maybe they need a new leader, but maybe they need to go in a new direction. But the pagan prophet raised above them, paid to curse them, sees the truth by the sovereign mercy of God. He sees that it's Yahweh's pleasure to bless his people. Secondly, I want you to see how Balaam saw uh, when he saw that Yah, it, it pleased Yahweh to bless his people, there we are in verse one of chapter 24, he did not go as at other times to look for omens. This time he's not going to check the livers of dead animals and uh, draw in the sand and, 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 and do his various pagan shenanigans. He's dropping all that because it's sinking in for him that God's committed to blessing his people, even as God has put those words in his mouth. When the first oracle is spoken, uh, Balaam goes to meet with Yahweh. Yahweh condescends to meet with him and he puts his words in his mouth and he says, go tell Balak what I say. And he goes and tells him, sorry, Yahweh's gonna bless him. He's not gonna curse him. Second time he goes, he meets with them. They do the sacrifice. He goes away and Yahweh meets with Balaam. He condescends to meet with his ancient sorcerer and, he's, and he puts words in his mouth and says, go, ta- go tell Balak what I say. Don't tell him anything else. And he goes and he says, sorry, I can't curse them. They're blessed. And he pronounces the blessing. But this time it's different. And I want you to see how Balaam saw all through the narrative. The Lord is giving Balaam things to say, but the intensity is heightened here. Everything is raised. It's moving toward a climax in this part of the story. So look at what happens in verse two. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And what happens? And the spirit of God came upon him. What an amazing act of condescension of the holy God. The spirit of God falls on Balaam. And now he's not just gonna get words in his mouth and go speak them, but he's actually gonna have something like an ecstatic vision. Verse three, he took his discourse and then he tells us what he saw by the spirit of God. And listen to, uh, he's been saying, God gave me the words, I say the words, but now listen to how poetic he goes. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the almighty. In other words, I think that means the vision that the almighty gave him, falling down with his eyes uncovered. This, this third description of this third vision of this third oracle is greatly heightened. It's not just a word given to him that he goes and speaks, but now he's seeing a vision, hearing words and seeing what God wants him to see. It's heightened. Uh, Sometimes people say to me, Robbie, what's up? I like to joke and say taxes. I used to say tuition when I had four kids in school and college. Um, and so sometimes, you know, last two years we could say interest rates are up, uh, but every now and then things go up and they rise with intensity. And that's what's happening here in this prophetic poetry. The intensity is raised and heightened. So now third, I want you to see what Balaam saw concerning Israel. He's seen that Yahweh loves to bless. It's his pleasure to bless his people. He's seeing it by the spirit of God. So now what is it that he sees about God's people? Remember they're in the wilderness. 
They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're dying to go into the land and see it. But he looks up and sees them in the wilderness, all laid out as Yahweh has commanded. And look at what he says in 24, 5 and following. He looks at them. It sounds like the Song of Solomon. It sounds like romance poetry. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Here's what he sees, and I don't think he was there in Genesis 2, but he basically says Israel is attractive and beautiful. Israel, even in the wilderness, is like a renewed garden of Eden. Didn't you hear that? evocations of the garden of Eden, like, uh, like gardens beside a river, uh, trees that Yahweh had planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Uh, every image that he says now evokes that original vision of Adam and Eve in the garden. Balaam is looking on God's people in the wilderness and he says, what I see is a garden of Eden people, which is exactly what God's vision for them is. When they go into the promised land, they're supposed to go in, live in his presence, count upon his promises. And the new Eden, the, 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 the promised land is intended to be to, for them a land uh, flowing with milk and honey, a new Eden indeed. That's the vision that Balaam sees. He looks at God's people in the wilderness and says, I see an Eden people. I see a people enriched and beautified. I see an encampment that looks powerful and beautiful. The power comes in the next verses. In verse seven, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. He's gonna be fruitful and spread into all kinds of places. In the second half of verse seven, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. So all of a sudden he's gone from a a royal, uh, I mean, I mean a garden image to a royal image. Israel is a garden kingdom. Verse eight, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him a repeat of last week's oracle for him like the horns of a wild ox and he moves in in verse 9 the royal picture gets clearer he crouched he lay like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him it's a reference to uh, Israel but also collectively but also Israel to the king from verse 7 who will come for Israel and then he says blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you now this is amazing so uh, this vision that Balaam has just to use Time frames we're kind of used to. Uh, we, we divide history in BC um, and AD. So this vision that, that Balaam has is roughly 1,407 years before Jesus Christ is born. Okay, so that's when he has this vision, 1,407 years before Jesus Christ is born. But he just quoted a passage 452 years older than that. When he said, verse nine, talking about this king coming uh, through, through, uh, God's people. He crouched, he laid on like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him. Uh, that's almost a direct quote of Genesis 49, nine, 452 years later, when Jacob is dying, he looks at his sons and he pronounces a blessing on his sons. He's basically forecasting their futures. And he says, Reuben, no, you messed up. Simeon Levi, you're too angry and too violent. And then he gets to Judah the fourth son. And he has this, a few verses um, about Judah and that the, basically says the kingdom is going to, there will be a kingdom and it's going to come through Judah. And he says, he crouched, he lay like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. The Hebrews almost identical for these two passages. 
In other words, when Balaam is on the, on this height and pronouncing a blessing on God's people, he's quoting something that Jacob, a man he's never met said 452 years later. How does that happen? How, how is this happening? God is speaking unbelievable promises, ancient promises through a pagan sorcerer. And somehow he has access to what Jacob said over his son Judah when Jacob is on his deathbed. And then verse nine begins with a quote from Genesis 49, nine, but he ends up attaching it to Genesis 12, three. Bless for those who bless you and curse for those who curse you. That almost comes directly out of Genesis 12, 3. And that was 684 years before Balaam made these utterances. 2,091 years before Jesus Christ was born. Unbelievable. And so part of what's going on here with this pagan sorcerer is he's seeing this is how God will bless his people. He will bless his people through some kind of royal figure. He, his people are blessed. They will be blessed. And not only will they receive his blessing, but be a conduit of his blessing. But now through Balaam, Yahweh is saying, and this blessing that God has for his people and their descendants, um, his blessings will be run through a royal figure. Uh, Balaam is talking about that 1,407 years before Jesus Christ is born. So we've seen what what Balaam saw about Yahweh, his determination, his pleasure in blessing Israel. Then we saw how Balaam saw, he saw by the spirit of God. Then we saw what he saw concerning Israel. Uh, God's going to bless them. He's going to make them like a renewed Eden and he's going to give them a royal ruler. But finally, I want you to see in the bonus oracle who Balaam saw, because it gets clear. Uh, flip over with me. And then in 24 verses 10 and following, we're just reminded that Balaam's anger was kindled again. Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hand together. That's kind of like, you know, in, in our world, we would p- pump our fist on the desk, you know, something like that, raise our voice. Um, and, and so you can, you can picture it, can't you? Balak is beside himself with anger. I have paid you to curse my enemies and I've offered you the lake house, the beach house and my season tickets for the next decade. Come on. If you'll just curse my enemies, all that's coming to you. And Balaam has gone up and spoken to the Lord three times and come back and blessed his people. He blessed his people. He blessed his people. Balak is furious. And then he says, you know what? It was my plan to honor you, but Yahweh has held back honor from you. That word honor there means big payday. It was, it's, it's all there for you if you just don't ask you to do. And of course, uh, Balaam says, nope, I told you from the very beginning, I told the messengers you, you sent, if you gave me all the silver and gold in your house, I would only do what, what Yahweh told me to do. And so look at verse 14 of chapter 24. And this is what he says. Now he's been hired uh, and taken up to the top three times to pronounce three oracles. And now Balaam's given up. But verse 14 Balaam speaks, and now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people. And he uses this wonderful phrase. It's also in Genesis 49, in the latter days. It's a, it's, and now the vision gets blurrier and more distant, but also more clear. So finally, let's see 
who Balaam saw. Once again, verse 15, he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, verbatim, verbatim. The oracle of the man whose eye is opened, verbatim from previous. Verse 16, the oracle of him who hears the words of God. He's already said that. He adds a new climactic line just to show you we're using poetic language and it's growing in intensity. The one who knows the knowledge of the most high. Balaam saying, what I'm saying now out loud to you, Balak, this comes from God himself. That's where these words come from. I've seen and heard, I've seen visions and heard words from God. And what I'm about to say to you, Balak, this is what God says. I didn't make it up. Who sees the vision of the almighty. I think that means the vision from the vision the almighty grants. Falling down, he's overwhelmed with his eyes uncovered. Falling down, overwhelmed by the presence of God in his vision, but eye uncovered, still alert and paying attention to what God says. And here's the heart. Here's the content of the bonus oracle. All this mystery, all this powerful presence of God. God is speaking. God's given the vision. These are God's words. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who, what, who are you talking about? A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Uh, what, who, who did Balaam see? He saw a mighty royal figure. A star shall come out of Jacob. Um, a star can often be a royal symbol. Um, and in here, I'm sure it is because the next line explains it. So in, in lots of passages, stars can mean different things. Uh, but in, but certainly I think it here is a royal signal because the next line and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Um, you might be like, well, what is a scepter exact, exactly? Well, if a shepherd is holding a rod or a staff in his hand, it's a shepherd's rod and a staff. If you put that rod or that staff in a king's hand, it's a scepter. If a general is holding a rod or a staff and leading his army, that's a general's rod and staff. You put that rod or that same staff in a a king's hand, it's a scepter. A scepter is a rod or a staff in a king's hand. It's royal insignia. The one who holds the scepter is claiming to be the true king. You never hand In the ancient world, you never handed a man a scepter until he was designated king and anointed as king. And when he was inaugurated to rule in his kingdom, they would put some rod, some staff in his hand, a royal one, a scepter. And so this is a clearly a royal vision. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not here. A star, a royal one shall come out of Jacob and a scepter, a royal figure shall rise out of Israel. 1,407 years before God's own son enters the story, the pagan sorcerer sees a vision of a royal son, but could it be a vision of of Jesus. How will God fulfill such a vision? So I want you to know uh, about 400 years later, uh, God's going to raise up King David and King David is going to take on some of these characters. He's going to defeat Edom named here in these verses. He's going to defeat Moab and some of the other uh, enemies named here. And so David is an initial fulfillment, a genuine good, it counts, early fulfillment of these words. King David would come and do a lot of these things, um, but there's someone greater than David who's going to come into the story. How will God fulfill such a vision? I find it wonderful and moving 
that a donkey carried this magician, Balaam, this sorcerer, this wise man from the east uh, up to these high places where he saw a royal figure who would come into the story because a donkey would carry, I believe, that royal figure in his mother's womb into the city of David into Bethlehem. Wise men from the east, uh, that's who Balaam is. Balaam is a wise man from the east who rode a donkey uh, to have these interactions and to give these oracles. Well, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, what happens? But wise men from the east, uh, they see a star and they go to Jerusalem, the royal city of God's people. Why? Because they want to worship the king of the Jews. They've seen his star. Matthew 2 tells us about that and We'll look at that passage in a couple of weeks. Um, it'll be great. So uh, there's this, this ancient seer who rides a donkey and sees the vision of the royal one. Uh, later, uh, that royal one in his mother's womb will ride a donkey into Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, but that king, uh, he will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. Late, late in his life, he will. Uh, just as the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem seeking the king of the Jews, uh, Jesus will ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And when he goes in into the, to be with the people of Judah, the people of Judea, uh, they will reject him. They'll turn against him and say that he can't be their Messiah and they'll hand him over to the Romans and then Matthew also tells us, this is in chapter 27, uh, the, he'll be handed over to Roman soldiers and the soldiers of the go- governor, they take Jesus uh, into their headquarters and they stripped him of his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him. Why? It was a royal symbol. The scarlet robe says, oh yeah, you're a king, are you? They're mocking him. And then they take uh, uh, some, some thorns and vines with thorns and twist them into a a mockery crown and press it on his head. They couldn't have known, could they have, that he'd be the king that would pull away the Genesis 3 curses from the world when they put those crown, those thorns on his brow. But then after that, they'll take a reed and put it in his right hand. Why they're doing that? It's a mockery scepter. They take a reed and put it in his, in his right hand saying, uh, you, you claim to be king of the Jews? And so they mock him and then they spit on him and they beat him. And they even hit him on the head with the reed, with the scepter. This is how they treat him. They shout, hail, king of the Jews. They struck on the head with the reed and then having stripped him and, of his royal robe and put his own clothes on him, they led him away to crucify him. And in this way, God's deepest plan was fulfilled. This through Jesus, the one who rode in the donkey for this kind of abuse, this is how God would bless his people, removing the curse from us. Oh, let us see more clearly than Balaam, God's pleasure to bless his people. God is so committed to blessing his people that he will observe, ab- absorb the curse that we deserve so that he might bless us in his justice and righteousness. Uh, this past Friday, just two days ago, I went to the Love Lady Center uh, with John and Candace Fountain. We had a great time. We went to a, a graduation ceremony. 15 women graduated from the Love Lady Center. If that doesn't mean anything to you, here's what that means. That meant 
women who've come out of Tutwiler Prison, one of the worst prisons in the nation, uh, or come out of uh, various addiction programs. Uh, they found themselves in the Love Lady Center, typically for nine or more months, uh, getting their lives put back together, often meeting the true King Jesus um, and learning all kinds of important things and being brought out of deep sorrow and bondage into true freedom. Uh, and it's wonderful. So we went to this graduation ceremony and, and a few of the women will get up and say a few things and they'll share their testimony. Jesus saved my life and they'll turn up uh, up, up in the, their kind of balcony and the, there's always kind of the, the women that have just arrived and they'll say, hey, don't quit, don't quit. Jesus is gonna save you. And it's, it's really fun to see. And some of them will, will turn to someone in the room and say, grandma, thank you. You're the only one who never gave up on me. Or mom and dad, thank you for being here and keeping my kids while I couldn't take care even of myself. I mean, it's a, it's a really moving scene, but there's lots of the women won't say anything. They can't really talk. They're so emotional. And there's one woman who, who didn't say any words, but we all saw her t-shirt. And the woman, Melinda, who was around the graduation said, well, she's not choosing to speak, but her t-shirt says it all. And her t-shirt in big bold letter says, if you ask me about my past, Jesus says he dropped the charges. And I love that. And it's even better than that. The truth is Jesus didn't just drop the charges against you and me. He took them on himself. Jesus became a curse for us so that we, if we believe in him, would experience God's blessings both now and forevermore. If you believe this, you understand the true meaning of the coming of God's son to be with us, among us, and for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you've come to be among us in our humanity, to be with us even in our guilt, not yours, but ours, to be for us on the cross that we might be forgiven for, of all our sin. Help us find our deepest joys in this gift from you, the gift that you are. Amen.